0: Welcome to the Space Beyond Scarce podcast. I'm your host, life and business coach, Kate Hawley. I work with entrepreneurs and creative change makers who value depth, impact, and purpose. Many of my clients are like me. They dream of creating prosperity through the value they provide, but they also want equity for others and sustainability for our planet. The scarcity mindset of our culture tells us that this dream isn't possible that we are not enough, that we don't have enough, that there is not enough for everyone and that's just the nature of reality. But really, it's just the nature of predatory capitalism. I'm glad you're here because we are going to prove that sad story false and make better meaning to build our future with. Here we go. Welcome to the Space Beyond Scarce, episode one. I'm really excited to be here recording my very first podcast. I've been thinking about this and researching this and talking to people about this for a very long time. uh, And it has been a process to get this out of my brain and into the world. And if you are listening to this very first episode, thank you. Thank you for being a part of it. So, to put it simply, this podcast is all about the scarcity mindset. It's about understanding what it is, where it comes from, why it's a problem for us individually, but also why it's a really big cultural problem, and understanding how we can overcome it. What are the different strategies and practices? What are some of the mindset shifts or reframes? that would help us to start to crack this open. So to start us off, I'd like to share a brief definition of what scarcity mindset is. You probably have heard it before, maybe you have a sense of it. I would simply define it as the belief or thought or assumption, whether that's conscious or unconscious, that you do not have enough, you will not have enough, you are not enough, and probably there is not enough for everyone. And where the subject gets really interesting and complex is when we start asking enough of what? What are we talking about? And that kind of opens us up into how scarcity mindset can really seep into every corner of our lives. Because it's not just referring to one resource. A lot of times people think of money as being the most relevant resource with scarcity thinking, but it's actually every resource. And a resource, we're going to go way deeper with the subject of what a resource is in a different episode. Um, But for today, I'll just say that a resource can really be anything from the kind of internal things like, um, I would say things like motivation, right? Um, Love, connection, inspiration, you know, there's all kinds of internal resources, and then there's the ones that we maybe think of that are a little more obvious, like physical external resources, like having yeah, access to money, the basics of survival, food, shelter, etc., and really beyond. So again, I'll go deeper with what a resource is and how we can expand our thinking about that in a future episode. But for now, it's just important to know that anytime you are in the way of thinking where you're believing that you don't have enough of the resource you need, we could define that as a scarcity mindset. It could also be a scarcity situation. And and again, we're gonna go deeper into that in the future as well, and kind of differentiating what's the difference between a scarcity mindset and just having a scarcity. But for today, I thought I would just introduce myself and a few of the questions and concepts that Have been driving my research and my thinking about this, so you know the flavor of the type of conversations and work that we're getting into here. I'm your host, Kate Hawley. I'm a life and business coach. I have a background in entrepreneurship. Um, I owned a yoga studio for many years. I have been a yoga therapist. I am a theater artist. I had a collaborative theater company that I co founded for about a decade. I have been in and out of different activist communities. I'm a real multi-passionate person, and I I nerd out on philosophy and ethics, and also futuristic thinking. I tend to be a more big-picture systems thinker, so I love to consider how some of these more personal self-development modalities that I've studied throughout my career and life, how they actually influence the systems or the bigger picture, if at all, This is something that's really been on my mind recently, where I think for so many years, people in the self-development communities have been saying that if we awaken our own consciousness and if we work on ourselves, this is going to change the world, it's going to change the culture, things are going to get better. And at the same time, I don't think we're seeing that because I think that we, this is not true across the board, but I think what's been happening for the last couple of decades that I've been part of this is that we haven't been explicit enough about how it is that this these mindset shifts and the work we're doing on ourselves are actually going to connect to the bigger picture. So a lot of what we're going to do on this podcast is to try to build those connections. And so what that means is that on this podcast we are going to be doing self-development work, we are going to be talking about the like kind of close-up personal ways that scarcity mindset shows up and how we can personally practice getting out of it. But you're also going to hear a lot from me about what we might call political and social issues. And we're really going to explore how we have to take some of these ideas a little bit further for them to actually be relevant to the collective. So what that means in practical terms is that we... We might be here because we want to create more prosperity for ourselves. That's often a reason why people are motivated to look at their scarcity mindset is when they start to realize it's keeping them from being able to have what they need and want. At the same time, we're also here to create a sustainable economy for everyone and also a sustainable ecology for our planet. And that has to be like every bit as important to us. And we have to look at how those things relate to each other. One of the advantages to the job that I have the honor of holding at the moment of being a coach is that I get to talk to people who have really different backgrounds and I get to learn a lot about what is really going on for them and what they're really thinking and experiencing. And through this, I've really noticed that scarcity mindset shows up for everybody, regardless of the subculture that you're in. So in my own life, um, I've spent a lot of time in yoga communities and kind of the more spiritual, like, wellness communities. Um, I've also been part of a more DIY artist culture. I've been, I've hung out with, like, more politically active folks who are real critical thinkers. I spend a lot of time these days with other entrepreneurs and coaches, many of whom are working on building six- and seven-figure businesses. And surprisingly, we have a lot of conversations about our genuine belief in dismantling the capitalist system. So I no longer see people in kind of partitioned like boxes. I see that there's a lot of crossover between these communities and there's also a lot of shared vision for what's possible for the world. And I also see that one of the shared challenges that everybody faces is scarcity thinking. And it shows up in different ways for different people, depending on their particular subculture and the particular assumptions and beliefs. But so far, I haven't really found anyone who doesn't have it, not even the people who are objectively the most prosperous people. So if you're listening to this podcast, you don't have to be a particular kind of person, I think, to resonate with the material that we're going to discuss I think that this subject will be of interest to you if you want to have more agency over your own life. But I also think this podcast is going to be helpful to anyone who is serious about changing the most toxic roots of our culture. I want to tell you about a weekend that really changed my thinking and made me more aware of how I had a deep-seated scarcity mindset in some very specific ways. This was one of my first experiences with coaching. It was a three-day group coaching intensive. So even though I had done a lot of personal development work, I don't think I was aware until that weekend how many of my assumptions about reality um, were really limiting beliefs that I had acquired. And I think part of it is that I had not left my own little subculture of people who kind of shared my assumptions about reality and the people who i encountered in this weekend intensive broke open some of my assumptions probably the biggest thing that was different for me about this weekend is that we started to do some kind of intense money mindset work and i had never done that before i'd never really examined my relationship to money and i started to realize that I had a lot of pent up judgment and discomfort and some angst about money. And I think this is a big part of why I went to this weekend, because I knew that I needed to change my relationship to money because I had recently opened a brick and mortar business and the level of financial responsibility that I was facing during that part of my life was intensely more than any other part of my life i had been able to kind of skirt by on the edges of the capitalist system for many years you know before i got married i was living with five roommates i was paying a really reasonable amount of rent i was working part-time as a waitress and then as a yoga teacher and doing some photography gigs you know and i didn't have kids at the time So I was really able to get my needs met without having to take money very seriously. I liked to spend most of my time making art and I didn't really get paid for that or I got paid very little. And all I cared about was preserving my ability to do that. So everything was just like, okay, how can I just not deal with money and make sure that I have time for art? But when I opened this business, this was also during a part of my life where I had two little kids suddenly, <laughs> like within the course of three years, I had two kids and a brick and mortar business. And so I was under a lot of financial pressure that I'd never experienced before that was forcing me to examine some some of my old stories and assumptions about money. And it was particularly difficult because I think as a business owner, you're in a really vulnerable position with money you have to make decisions about what to charge people how to communicate about that you have to decide what the value exchange is going to be you have to take a lot of risks you have to plan ahead you have to think about how much you want to invest in order to grow right and how many more risks do you want to take after you take that initial risk of opening the business so all of my money stuff was coming up and I didn't have any tools for it. And so this weekend was very helpful to me in that. Another thing that happened for me during this weekend intensive is that I was surrounded by people who I perceived as being more successful or having it all together, like being quote unquote real business people. And I was really surprised to find out that they had the same doubts and fears and limiting beliefs that I did. This made me realize that it wasn't a personal feeling of mine that I was having, you know, scarcity mindsets and other blocks that were coming up for me. Um, And this allowed me to get more curious. Once I was able to stop being embarrassed about it or being in shame about it, I just got really curious. So in many ways, this weekend opened my mind. It allowed me to stop being so judgmental about people who may have had more money than me or who talked about money more than I did. I was able to to accept that there was a part of me that also really wanted to play big and up-level and make more and dream bigger, right? And that was super liberating for me. And it felt really good. It felt really healthy. It felt like it really opened up a lot more possibility. I also started to realize how much of my fear and guilt about money was also tied up in the systems we come from, right, where it's been thousands of years of patriarchal oppression that have kept women from being able to access money. It's kept women from the freedom to have desires of their own to say, yes, it's okay for you to want things and then go after what you want. That has not been okay. And so part of me started to realize that What I thought was like a very politically liberated mindset I had about money was in some ways very oppressed. And it felt really good to give myself permission to not cling to poverty or cling to um, my pattern, which was really overextending and under-earning. I kind of had this way of being in my business and in my work where as long as I gave more than I took, I felt like it was okay to take a little bit but this is a real burnout cycle because if you're constantly giving more than you take you're not going to be balanced in the end you're going to have a deficit so again this this work was really important to me it really helped open some things up for me and at the same time i have some long standing critiques of the inequity of our system that also came up for me that weekend in a way that never fully got resolved one of the assumptions i went into that weekend with that I don't think I'd ever fully looked at is that having more money makes you a worse person. And I suddenly realized I was surrounded by people who had a lot of judgment towards people who make higher amounts of money. And this is something that a lot of entrepreneurs go through. You start to realize, oh, I'm not going to safely, my brain is not going to let me make money. If I think making money is a threat, if it's a threat to my belonging, or if it makes me a bad person, I'm not going to allow myself to do it. So this was one of the first experiences I've ever had being in a group where we were learning the opposite message. We were learning you can be a good person and make money. You can do good things with your money. There is not some magical connection between money and badness. It's just a neutral resource. We also started talking about the idea that there's plenty for everyone And I think one of the other fears that I'd had, maybe unconscious or not, was that for me to take what I need is going to take away from what somebody else needs, which is fundamentally a zero-sum mindset. We're going to talk a lot more about the zero-sum mindset as we go on because it's super important to this concept of scarcity thinking. But essentially that means that you believe that you know, everything is finite and for somebody to win or get their needs met, it means somebody else has to lose. That's the zero sum game, kind of a winner takes all mentality. And if you tend to be somebody who doesn't want to take away from others, or you want to be like very non-predatory in your way you show up in the world, then you may tend to not take enough for yourself because you're worried you're going to take from somebody else. So this idea also kind of opened up some new ways of thinking for me to think, huh, is that true? Could I take what I want and it's not going to take from somebody else? Now, keep in mind that this is all theoretical. Like, it's not like I had some faucet I could just go turn on and suddenly money was going to start flowing at me. But I had to, for me, I have to think things through all the way and I have to know that the logic is sound and that the ethics are sound if I was really trying to give myself permission to say, "All right, yes, I'm going to go for it." And so I this kind of started me on a multi-year process I think I'm still in the middle of of really asking from a very curious place, like, oh, like letting go of some of my judgments about money, but really getting curious, you know, is there an amount of money that when you start making at that level, maybe it does cause more harm? And what is that amount? And I started wondering, is it true that there's plenty for everyone? You know, or is that not true? So that weekend was kind of just the beginning of me asking some of these questions. And I went on to study with a lot of different business coaches and other folks who were saying very similar things. I heard multiple people say something along the lines of, oh, well, money is an amplifier. So when good people have more money, they're going to do good things with it. I've heard coaches say, "Well, when women have more money, women spend it on better things. They do more good things with it." Um, I've heard people say that we have to have money to have power and influence. So, if we want to change the world, then we should make as much money as we can. I've heard people say again, "There's plenty for everyone, right?" So, so just because you're making more doesn't mean somebody else has less. And here's the thing: I do believe a lot. Of parts of those statements. But the more I've researched scarcity and the scarcity mindset, the more I really see that there's still some problematic thinking about the supremacy of money. And there's also some willful ignorance about some of the ways that we just behave predictably as human beings when we have access to more money. And this has nothing to do with our moral character of being a good or bad person. It has nothing to do even with our gender. It just is true that people who have more money tend to consume more than other people. They tend to travel more, right? They tend to have a bigger carbon footprint. They tend to be more likely to have invested in different things that would give them a passive income stream. So that could be Things like the stock market or investing in real estate. We could have a whole different podcast about how the stock market is creating harm. We could have a whole nother podcast about how the commodification of housing has created harm. So certainly these things are complicated, but it's also the case that people who have more money, and especially those who are working on passive income, tend to be relying on the sacrifices of others for that money to rise up to them. People who have higher incomes also tend to be more likely to pursue legal tax evasion strategies. And I even heard this in some of the business coaching that I received, you know, that it was considered kind of an admirable thing to do to, like, get your business to be so successful that you had to move to a state that has no income tax for businesses. You know, when we have more access to money, we're also more likely to privatize resources rather than supporting the public commons. So that could be the tendency people have to send their kids to private school when they have the ability to do so, or to stop using the public library or public transit because they can afford to do all of those things on their own. And the other thing about this is that we live in a culture that has sort of destroyed the public commons to a large extent. So many of us feel like the best option we have to live a good life and have a secure life is to move towards more privatization because that's how our system is set up so it really is not a moral judgment it's not that people are bad because they're trying to do this it's that our systems are not working for everybody they are designed to keep us locked into this this inequity that we're in they're also designed to rely on an unsustainable level of consumption So we have to be very aware, I think, that if we aspire to make more money and to kind of privatize more resources, which a lot of us do. I mean, one of my dreams for so many years has been to buy some land, to live on a property where I might even be able to have a few acres, be a little closer to nature. And I know lots and lots of other people who have that same dream. And what that shows me is that there's something really innate in what we desire and need and want as human beings, that has to do with being closer to nature. It has to do with proximity to green spaces. It has to do with the quality of life that we experience when we can wake up and be looking at water and sky and trees and see wildlife. So I'm not here to, again, pass any judgment on those of us who want to design a life that makes us really happy that fulfills us that is meaningful for us but more i want to be attentive to the places where we might slip away from a society that works for everyone and the reason this is very important is when we go back to that question that broke everything open for me of there's plenty for everyone because as much as I loved hearing it, it felt like comforting to me to hear, yeah, there's plenty for everyone. You can take what you need. It's not going to hurt anybody else. It feels really good to think of that and to believe that, but there was a part of me that was like, wait a minute, is that true? How do we know that's true? I will say it felt true, but at the same time, while we were in this like coaching intensive we all had we had brought in 100 dollar bills and we were doing all these different games with the 100 dollar bills to it was a cool exercise it was very i would say it was very somatic like you could really feel the tension and the threat response in everybody's nervous systems even just by having the visceral feeling of the money in the room so it was a very helpful exercise but i it was very noteworthy to me that while we were in here playing these games with 100 dollar bills there were people right outside the building on the street who have no houses to live in have no shelter they have no way of knowing where their dinner is coming from so i kept circling back to to thinking well if is it true that there's plenty for everyone as you know coaches like to say i think spiritual advisors of many different types like to say that Or are we actually pitted against each other in this zero-sum game in which it's inevitable that there will be winners and losers, which is, I think, more what economists and also right-wing pundits will say? So I think that the only answer to this question that has ever really made sense to me Is when I look to leaders like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and Robert Reich and so many other, like I'm sure I'm missing like a huge number of important leaders. I mean, Martin Luther King Jr., there's so many different people who have spoken to this that, like, yeah, we can live in the space beyond scarce. We can believe there is plenty for everyone because it's a fact. We can show that there is. However, it is very important that when we're talking about that, that we also mention the plenty cannot and is not getting to everyone with our current systems. So it doesn't really do us much good to comfort ourselves with the spiritual ideal that there's plenty for everyone if it isn't coupled with a political commitment to making that a reality. What this means is that we might have to get a little bit more cozy with some concepts and words that make people in this culture really start sweating things like regulation, redistribution, deprivatization. I think this is the only honest way to stop believing in the myth of scarcity is that we have to take it from an ideal into an active practice. Because otherwise, all we're really talking about when we talk about things like manifestation is really privileged people gaining more privilege while others die in the streets. And really, that's just the same old zero-sum game, kind of dressed up with crystals and self-help books and liberal politics. So about two years ago, I decided that I wanted to write a book about the scarcity mindset. And I started to do some research and writing, and I started to ask more questions that were coming up for me around this subject. And one of the questions that continued to arise was a question of, what is the opposite of scarcity? I'll give you a a clue as to the answer that I found because it's the name of this podcast, which is, I didn't find a single answer, so I just decided to name the podcast The Space Beyond Scarce because it lets us talk about all the different things that actually fit into what else is there besides scarcity. So a lot of people will say abundance I just learned this phrase that people use for abundance. It's a, the Italian way of saying it. I think it's abondanza or something like this, abundanza, and which also sort of means abandon, right? Like abundance is that, like, I want to live with wild abandon. I want to live with the sense that I never have to pay attention to money or resource because it's just going to keep flowing at me. And, you know, yes, that sounds awesome. There's times when I love to have experiences like that. I think they're really helpful to have when you get to have like a really lavish retreat or dinner or something that just lets you get into that feeling. So I I have nothing wrong with, with abundance as a concept. But I will say that I don't think it's really the opposite of scarcity. This is an idea I first encountered in a book called The Soul of Money by Lynn Twist, which is a wonderful book on the subject of scarcity mindset. And She says, well, abundance isn't really the opposite of scarcity, because almost by definition, it means more than enough, which means it's kind of a vague place where you'll never actually know if you've gotten there, because almost in its very essence, you're trying to avoid having to define what enough would look like. So if you never know when you've gotten there... Then you will continue to live in a perpetual state of feeling like you never have enough, which is exactly the same as living in scarcity or scarcity mindset, which is really interesting, right? Because that's why we have a lot of people in this world who objectively have plenty of resources, but they continue to feel like they don't have enough. So, what Lynn Twist proposes is that the opposite of scarcity is sufficiency, which is legit, right? Like it's knowing. What enough is, and then working towards that exact amount, I think that's a very practical way of thinking of it, and it's uh, it points to the skill that we're going to develop. It's a very important skill to know how to identify what sufficiency or enough would be, and to live in that place, to feel it in your body. But I don't think it actually tells the whole story, because I also think that. It depends on what resource it is or what scarcity it is that we're talking about. So there's times when, to me, I feel like trust is the opposite of scarcity because what scarcity feels like is living in a state of distrust, right? It's living in a state of not trusting yourself, not trusting other people, not trusting the universe, not trusting that enough is going to come to you. So trust is a really important space to inhabit, in trying to get beyond scarcity. And there's other times when I feel like creativity or we could call it generativity is the opposite of scarcity because it shows us that we can actually create something out of what may have felt like nothing. And we can also take one set of resources and turn it into a different set of resources. And so that is a very empowering process that can help us be less afraid of scarcity. And then we have the whole messy realm of internalized scarcity mindset, which is all of the stories that we have about ourselves, where we tell ourselves, I'm not smart enough, I'm not cool enough, I'm not extroverted enough, you know, I don't have a good enough podcasting voice or whatever, you know, story we have about our enoughness. And in those moments, it feels like self-love is the opposite of scarcity. And then... (laughs) Then when I zoom out, when I look at the bigger picture of this, I become very convinced that the real opposite of scarcity is equity. Because we could have some people who are living in abundance or sufficiency, um, and even if we ourselves are lucky enough to become one of those people, that doesn't mean that we have overcome the myth of scarcity. Like I said earlier, we're never going to be able to disprove the myth of scarcity until we've achieved equity. Equity is enough for everyone, now and in the foreseeable future. And even after exploring all of these different concepts and ideas, I will say that there's one word in particular that keeps coming back over and over again that, for me, is the opposite of scarcity in a profound way. And for me, that word is depth, D-E-P-T-H, depth. Through all of this research and questioning and searching for answers that I've been doing, the one thing that has really stood out to me is this thing which I've started calling scarcity capitalism. So other people will be very critical of capitalism, rightly so. So none of these are new arguments. But I decided to start calling it that in particular, scarcity capitalism, to try to differentiate, to say that I don't think all forms of capitalism or like everything that could possibly show up within capitalism has to be scarcity oriented. I think there's another way. And the other way is something that I call depth entrepreneurship, which right now is kind of a philosophy that I have. Um, But being... One of many entrepreneurs who has come to this as kind of a reluctant capitalist who came to this work of being self employed, not because I wanted to make as many profits as I possibly could, but because I wanted a sort of creative self actualization through my work that didn't feel possible inside of the system. I knew for sure that I did not want to go to work for a scarcity capitalist. And give my life force to a company I didn't believe in or agree with, or to give my life force even to a job that wasn't gonna make the best use of what I had to give the world. And I completely respect all the reasons why people do take those jobs, but for me, it just wasn't going to work. And I know lots of other people who ended up as reluctant capitalists like me because they couldn't fit into the system, specifically because. They, ha- they felt a real deep need to do something different than playing by the normal rules of the game. And for folks like that, I think what we find when we enter into the world of business, if you will, which is such a big word that means a million different things. But I think a lot of us find that the advice we're given and the classes we take and the trainings we do, they all have a kind of trivializing trajectory. That is driving towards scarcity capitalism, even in the small business world. You know, every business training I've ever done has pretty much had some version of like, create a customer avatar, figure out what is your ideal client like to Google at night, right? Um, something that, look, if that's helpful to people, that's great. But I resented it and I, I still can't do it because... I will not trivialize people in that way. I'm not going to trivialize my potential clients that way. I'm also not going to trivialize myself and my own work by forcing it into a really tidy elevator pitch. And I realize that by doing so, I I may not make as much money as I could otherwise make. I realize that all of these lessons are there for a reason. They're trying to teach, look, Don't you want to just make money as efficiently as possible? Here's how you do it. Don't reinvent the wheel. But the problem with that is that we have missed a lot of other values and a lot of other resources that we are also trying to generate through a really high quality, deep business. And, you know, having a background as an artist, and not just any artist, my background is in experimental theater. (laughs) So I always took the weird road i always took the like well if we were making musical theater we would have a full house but we're not we're making really different kind of experimental work that is trying to change the culture or ask more difficult questions or teach people to think in a more abstract non-linear way and it was harder to get audiences to that work right and What I've learned from entrepreneurship is really helpful, actually. If I could go back to my old experimental theater self, I would know more about how to get people into the seats. But because a lot of it is just translation and really authentic translation. And I think we're entering into an era where where people are really hungry for authenticity, for being treated like whole, deep humans and not just consumers. and. I know some people would, would be really cynical of this and say, well, yeah, but you can't do that inside of the container of business. Business is there to treat people like consumers. That's kind of the story that's told. I don't think that's true. I think businesses are just like any other part of our, our culture. They're contributing and creating the culture as they go. So it's really important to, it's really important for me as an entrepreneur and for the people that I work with to find some different ways of doing this. So that we're not repeating the same old kind of oppressive, harmful cycles of scarcity capitalism. So let me talk a little bit about what scarcity capitalism is, or I'm going to try to paint the picture for you, and I think you'll know just what I'm talking about. Okay, so the first signature of it is that it places money at the top of a resource hierarchy to the detriment of our other resources, So it's trading deep value for cheap profits. And again, this is not about um, money is evil. This is not about a, a binary here. Money is great. Money is a useful tool. But when we place it at the top of a resource hierarchy, and we say money is the most important resource we're missing a lot of really important information. We're missing, and we're also kind of forgetting something super important, which is money is actually not a resource in and of itself. Money is a tool that we invented so that we could more easily trade real resources. But you know, we can't eat money. We can't drink money. (laughs) As the famous line goes, money can't buy us love. The things that really matter are resources that go beyond it. Scarcity capitalism creates kind of a race to the bottom because it tends to reward mediocrity and cutting corners rather than rewarding quality and excellence. Now, a lot of people in the kind of new newer thinking around business have pointed out that actually, if you're willing to invest in quality and excellence, in the long run, that actually is still... Um, profitable, but it's not profitable in the fastest possible way. The fastest possible way has been destruction, mediocrity, cutting corners. Scarcity capitalism is the way of thinking that relies on constant growth as the only definition of success. So that's like when we hear that the GDP is growing and we insist that the GDP has to continue to grow in order for us to have a healthy economy. Or in the business world, that's when we expect a business to keep growing and growing and growing. The revenue should keep growing. The number of people hired should keep growing. That tends to be the measurement of success in business. And oftentimes the result of that is that we are building systems that necessarily rely on increasing consumption, increasing unnecessary consumption. We often lose sight of what's actually important um, and growth just becomes the only factor. I would say that scarcity capitalism is so pervasive that it's actually the predominant culture that we live in. And what that culture teaches is that we should identify as consumers before citizens. And we're taught that Consumer choice is our definition of self-expression, right? So who you are as a person is expressed through what you buy, what color, you know, you choose, what type of phone you have, what type of boots you wear. We become so attuned to this like cheap, trivial brand awareness as the way that we make decisions And we apply that same way of thinking to our politics. So then, rather than actually getting deep into the kind of complexities of scientific literacy or understanding complex policies or systems or learning about the other stakeholders in democracy who you may need to vote on behalf of, people tend to just say, oh, well, I know how to do this democracy thing because I know how to shop. What you do is you go in and you see what color do I like what feels cozy to me which one do I want and then you pick that one and this is not a smart way to do your voting (laughs) and you know I assume some of you don't vote that way but this can't be all about like which t-shirt did I like the best from all of the different shops that's the one I'm gonna wear we have to think about what is best for the whole what is going to solve the biggest problems that we have One of the most insidious things about scarcity capitalism is that it uses breakthroughs in our understanding of psychology to manipulate us. It uses our hidden wants and desires. It uses our unconscious fears and dreams to try to influence and manipulate what we're going to purchase. And in order for that to work, it prefers for us to be unaware of our unconscious mind, It prefers to keep us in that more ignorant place where we can't fully develop. Most scarcity sales tactics are designed to override our critical thinking. They have it down to a science. They know how to pressure us to make a quick purchase before we can think about it, before we can fully review whether that's an integrity for us. This is really damaging to our mental health because it keeps us trapped in that space where we are relying on consumption as a way to get out of threat, right? They're essentially creating the threat. (laughs) They know how to do that. They're creating the threat by provoking our hidden fears and desires. And then they're promising that the purchase is going to resolve the threat for us. And this is how we become addicted consumers. We talked about that internalized scarcity mindset, that feeling that I'm not enough. That feeling arguably, was handed to us on a platter by scarcity capitalism. It's not necessarily a universal (laughs) neurosis. It is distinct. And I remember even being pretty young, like being like 10 or 11 years old. I used to watch so much television. And I remember one day just suddenly developing the awareness. I looked down at my thighs and I realized that they were kind of squishy That they didn't look like the thighs of the women on the television, the women on all the ads for razors and shaving and, you know, the women whose thighs you could see very clearly on all the commercials. And I remember my first thought was, my thighs are too squishy. They're wrong. They don't look the way they're supposed to look. And then I remember thinking, huh, I think that's because of the commercial I just watched. I think I'm I'm expecting that I should look like her. And even as there was a part of me that was aware of the manipulation of that, there was a deeper part of me, a stronger part of me that said, oh, and I really want to look like her. She is getting it right. What can I do to get those thighs instead? And I probably spent at least the next decade of my life pursuing the thighs from that shaving ad before I finally learned that it was all smoke and mirrors. So scarcity capitalism tends to oscillate between this fear-mongering but also this romanticizing. It creates the false sense that perfection is possible and that we are in total control and that if if we're experiencing something that's uncomfortable or that's difficult or messy or like we aren't fitting the perfection it's just because we aren't making the right consumer choice. And I've gone down this rabbit hole so many times, despite the fact that I intellectually understand this. There's been so many times when I thought, okay, I have this skin issue. What this means is that I haven't found the right product yet. And like spent so much money trying so many different products thinking maybe this one will solve it. Maybe this one will solve it. You know, some of that is completely natural. I'm not saying that there's no product that's ever helped anybody before, but I think that we forget or we never learn how to actually sit with the truth, which is that nothing is perfect. We aren't in control. That it's very important for us to learn to be uncomfortable and deal with difficult and messy and complex things. And the soothing that we feel from believing the story that we could just buy something and make it better, that may feel really good in the moment, but it has really devastating effects on our psyche and also on our world. So I have a lot more to say about what fits into this realm of scarcity capitalism, and I I also encourage you to think about it and start noticing it if you haven't already Um, And again, this doesn't mean that every business or every form of capitalism necessarily fits this. I've actually seen a lot of really interesting new voices in the business coaching realm um, that are really pushing back and trying to change the culture. But I will say that thinking about this idea, it reminds me of a quote from a book called The Overstory by Richard Powers, By the way, uh, all the books that I'm mentioning, I'll link to in the show notes. And this is a book you should definitely read. I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that this book changed my life. I mean, I just finished it like a month ago. So (laughs) I don't know if I can say it changed my life yet, but it's definitely changed my life for the last couple of months. So in the book, there's a scene where these environmental activists are trying to save an old growth forest and they ha- they spray paint like on the side of a bulldozer or something this phrase which is no to the suicide economy yes to real growth no to the suicide economy yes to real growth I had a moment with that phrase like I, I had a lot of these moments when I was reading that book where I just had to stop reading and like press my forehead against the book and cry for a minute To me, scarcity capitalism is the suicide economy. It is this unfathomable death cult that is the ride we're on where we somehow think we can keep going this way when every bit of rational, scientific, philosophical information would indicate otherwise. Another book that you're going to hear me mention a lot is "Donut Economics" by Kate Rayworth, and I'll also link to that one. And I'll talk more about it in a future episode. But um, one of the the primary functions of that book and her whole concept is to get us thinking outside of this idea that we can just grow the GDP infinitely. So when they say yes to real growth, I think that's an invitation to. Reexamine our relationship to growth itself. And what I would say is that real growth is deep growth. It's like the growth of a root system under the ground rather than just expecting that like the tree above the ground is going to shoot upwards infinitely and super fast. The root system is where that comes from. And it has to be strong and it has to be connected to other roots, right? It's it's this whole ecosystem of its own. It's deep growth. And so what that might mean for us, as I think creatures who are inherently designed to want to grow, I think that's the human experience. And this has very much been my work in my life, is this study of how do people grow? How do people really grow? I think the way people really grow is by seeking depth rather than seeking to amplify Or grow their the needs of their ego self and this really pans out with what you see when people invest in external growth as their primary thing they're gonna do like okay I'm gonna grow my finances I'm gonna grow the number of cars and homes that I own etc we see that that doesn't translate to inner growth or to deep growth And we see that there's an emptiness there and a lack of meaning and satisfaction that will continue until that person turns towards deep growth. I think deep growth provides an opportunity to do so much more while wasting so much less. I think it's where we're going to find all of the resources that we're looking for to create plenty for everyone in a sustainable way. So as we move forward with this conversation, I invite all of us, including me, to be willing to sit in the complexity of some of this, in the paradox of some of this, to hold the tension between opposites that comes up and really to see that this is not about a prescriptive, like right versus wrong way of doing any of this. This is actually an invitation to deep growth for you and me and for our whole culture. And to say that in your exploration of this, you may find that you would benefit from maybe consuming less, spending less, being more conscious of your waste, but others may actually find that they would benefit from dreaming a little bigger or allowing themselves more indulgences, more pleasure, more pursuit of what they really want. I think there's probably some of us who need to learn to take more while others of us may need to learn to give more, or we may need to open to the idea of just opening up that flow of give and take and sharing that may feel currently kind of sanctioned off. So this is a very personal inquiry. It's a very personal process. And again, this is up to you to engage with this in your own way and know that you cannot get it wrong. So I want to share kind of my vision for what's possible through this work. One of my biggest goals for this podcast is to illuminate the ways that our fear of scarcity has become a self-fulfilling cycle, both on an individual level and also in that greater culture and economy. I think we have both a real and urgent scarcity challenge, and we have plenty of resources to solve that challenge. We have... um really legitimate traumatizing scarcities like houselessness and hunger and poverty and climate change and in no way are we denying or like bypassing the the harshness of those realities but it's also true that we actually have enough housing we have more housing this is uh in yes magazine they recently published an article about the, the housing crisis in san francisco and through the study, they were able to show that for every homeless person on the streets, and they have one of the worst homeless crises of anywhere in the country, for every homeless person, there was like four empty residences sitting in the hands of real estate investors. For a very long time, we've known that we throw away more food every day than it would take to feed all the hungry people in the world. For a very long time, We have known that we actually have all of the technology that we would need to solve the climate crisis, and it is ready to be built into our infrastructure right now. So we have to get honest. We do not have a scarcity problem. We have a mindset problem. We have a political will problem. We have a thinking problem. We have a self-fulfilling cycle that we are stuck in. And we have to learn how to break free from it. So how do we do that? Right? That's the big question. (laughs) I'm going to get into that. And I'm going to invite my podcast guests to help us get into that. But I would like to be specific on some of the shifts that I'm hoping we can make. And I'm also going to teach different practices that we can try to integrate these shifts into our life. And all of that teaching is going to come in future episodes. Today, we're just kind of setting up the world that we're entering into here. So here's a list of some of the the kind of shifts of thinking or culture that, that I want to invite us to engage. We're going to shift from zero-sum thinking to starting to look for win-win solutions. We're going to shift from the hyper-individualism, especially of American culture, which is where I am. Um, to practicing collaboration and sharing and reciprocity. We're going to shift from the urgency of constantly putting out fires, except for when there's an actual fire, we have to put those out. Um, But we're gonna try to shift, especially in our own lives to practice this. How do we go from there to actually learning how to skillfully prioritize? How to make space for what's important, but not urgent? We're going to shift from addiction to consumption or overconsumption to a more thoughtful and deepened understanding of the true value of things and also the true cost of things. We're going to shift from being stuck in tunnel vision, which is what scarcity does to us, to trying to get that bigger picture perspective. We're going to shift from being afraid of each other to trusting each other. We're going to shift from believing that we have nothing to recognizing all of the resources we already have. We're going to shift from consuming as a means of self-expression to creating as a means of self-expression. And we're going to shift from only focusing on how we can have a good life through privatization to focusing on how the, the public commons could actually create a good life for everybody. Ultimately, we may not agree on all of the strategies of how to get there, but I think many of us really want the same things. Right? We all want to have enough money. We all want to have enough resource. We all want to be taken care of, to know that we're going to have a decent quality of life. We want security and predictability for ourselves and for our children. We all want to have meaning and to be of service. All of us appreciate proximity to nature and beautiful things and leisure. All of us want the freedom to be who we really are. We want to know that we can survive and also thrive. We all want to be in community with other people and we want to know that our contributions matter, that other people see and appreciate them. Most of us also want very much to preserve a habitable planet for the future Most of us want our children and their children and all of the generations to come to be able to live well and plentifully on this planet. Most of us want human rights for all. Most of us want our fellow humans to be housed and fed and treated with dignity. We want to know that regardless of people's circumstances, they're going to be given the care they need. We want to minimize unnecessary trauma and harm and suffering. And what all of these things have in common is the shared obstacle, not of true scarcity, but of the excuse of scarcity. We're told that we cannot have these things, that we do not deserve these things, that there isn't enough for these things. I'm ready to stop making excuses. So I hope you'll stay with me because as this podcast goes on, we're really gonna paint a different picture we're going to tell the story of The Space Beyond Scarce, all of the ways that there is enough right now for the life and world we dream of if we can merge the mindset shifts we need with bold collective action. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Space Beyond Scarce. If you enjoyed this episode, please go over to Apple iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. It really helps out a new podcaster. Thank you.